Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to episode number 91 of the Mets Up Podcast, presented by the Seven Line, going over the Washington National Series, midweek series against a very bad team, and shocker, the Mets took the series. Now, there was a little bit to talk about here, and this is going to be a big mailbag episode as well, because there wasn't a whole lot of in-depth conversation to have about what happened in these games, and that's fine. We're still going to go over all three. We're still going to tell you all our thoughts and opinions about what happened against the Nationals in these three games, but we're going to have some fun and answer some questions as well. So if you guys are not yet following us on our social media, at MetsUp is the place to do it on Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTube channel. That's the best way to get in your mailbag questions as well. Just tweet them to us. That's a really good way that we can see it. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find them, you'll be able to listen to us. Drop us a rating, drop us a review. Without further ado, let's bring in the man, James Shiano. How you doing? Doing well. It's been a minute since we've spoke. I was out in Arizona doing some stuff with the King of Juco, Five Points Videos, another Mets fan, swinging some bats. I got a wicked blister on my hand that I now have some tape over. It's It was a good week, though. I saw you hit the ball 92 miles an hour. Yeah, 92 miles an hour. I was I was impressed by that. That is faster than Juan Soto's average exit velo. So if you just take it in a vacuum, I hit the ball harder than Juan Soto. Yeah, honestly, literally. And I think if we would have set a line for you going into this week, your max exit would have been like 86 and a half, maybe 87. You smashed it. Yeah, no, I was kind of comfortably sitting at like that 86, 87 spot. That was like my average exit velo, which basically I'm David Fletcher. So if I ever thought that I could play Major League Baseball, well, David Fletcher can, so can I. I'm saying that. David Fletcher can do it, I can do it. He just, he's a little faster. Simply not true. You can't play shortstop. Well, listen, he can play the, I can hit like David Fletcher. How about that? Okay, that's not that hard. I can also have zero barrels in the Major League season. Well, anyway what was your week like how are you doing dude i mean last time i talked to you guys i was in michigan so shout out that the day i came back i moved into a new apartment over here in brooklyn so if you guys watch on youtube i have a window it's the first window i've ever had in new york and i'm pretty jacked up about it let's go yeah you are the man of having different backgrounds and this is one of the many backgrounds that we have now seen but i feel like this is probably going to be a pretty steady spot for you for a little bit i think quite the opposite i think i'll be <laughs> out of here pretty soon again <laughs> a, lot, a, lot, a lot of moving parts right now in the life of james Shiano. a lot of cool things might be happening yeah no, a lot of cool things could be happening very very soon for everybody involved here We'll see what goes on. Game one, though. Let's talk about the Mets playing the Nationals. Game one, Carlos Carrasco making the start versus Patrick Corbin. I said J.D. Davis was going to hit a home run. He did not. So, unfortunately, my hot streak has ended, as my hot streak has also ended on betting, sports betting. Rough, rough past week for me. I don't know about you, but it has been a lot of losses here. I like how you came into this episode with no intention of talking about the Mets. Like we've said, that was like the third thing you've talked about. It's not the New York Mets. That is so opposite of every other episode of this show we've ever done. Listen, I was in Arizona. I did. I wasn't as in depth with these games as I have been in the past. I, I still caught everything. I was still able to catch some recaps here and there. But let's let's talk about. It. Let's be honest. 
Carlos Carrasco here, that was the story of this game as well as the Mets just facing Patrick Corbin, who's not a very good pitcher anymore, hit the ball hard against him. It was a pretty clean win, honestly. Yeah, clean saw win. I mean, it was dicey because the Mets just had one of those like really awful and annoying starts to the game where they were smoking the ball, seemed like two or three times at least per inning, and nothing ever was happening. Like Corbin did get some strikeouts, but off the bat, there were like three or four balls hit at least 110 miles an hour in the first collection of innings. JD had four. I don't think he had any hits to show for it. A clean win, sure. It looked like that at the end, but the Nationals did have the lead here. After a Michael Franco RBI double early in the game, your boy Michael Franco, also two out, a two out Michael Franco RBI double, which is really annoying, and it would have been significantly worse if Jack McNeil didn't make a very slick cutoff play at the uh, getting, I don't even remember who at home played. The Nationals are such like a nameless, faceless team at this point. Like there's a, there's basically three guys and everybody else like, uh, who was that? Yeah, no, Jeff McNeil made a great play. Keith was really just freaking out on the mic. He was like, oh, he got himself in the right position. And it was a nice play. It was a good, it was like a clean relay. And it was a nice play by Jeff McNeil, but you would have thought that, you know, Jeff McNeil just saved the world from ending the way that Keith was <laughs> reacting. But that's what we love about Keith. He gets excited about the little things in baseball, the things that are pure. And Jeff McNeil, small play, doesn't look huge in the box score by any means, but it actually ended up being pretty important in this game. Yeah, definitely, because that was a situation where there would have been two outs, but still an inning going on with men in scoring positions. So good on Jeff for stopping that rally. Carrasco did give up another lone run, a rally Adams home run. It just became, as these innings ticked away, you felt like that weird, like, Mets dread feeling of, like, this is game, it's not going to happen. Like, we had seven hard-hit balls against Patrick Corbin in five innings. J.D. McCann each had two over 100 miles an hour, and we just couldn't even find anything to what felt like close to a run. Finally, we got Corbin out of the game, and we got to the Nationals' bullpen on Jeff McNeil. Big two-out, two-run double after a literal rat ran across the field. Yeah, the rally rat, as it has now been coined. It feels like we have some sort of rally animal every year now. We had the rally parakeet, got the rally rat, we got the rally raccoon. I mean, we've had a, a lot of different things going on with this Mets roster and this Mets team over the last few years. But yeah, Jeff McNeil, classic hit, smoked it to first base at Josh Bell, who just kind of didn't get in front of the ball, and it bounced off his glove, and it went into right field. Easy double, a couple runs in, and Jeff McNeil doing the Jeff McNeil thing, hitting the ball hard, on the ground relatively-ish, line drive, ground ball kind of thing, and it doesn't matter because it's Jeff McNeil, and he's back. He's back. He's so fucking back. I think Rob Manfred has to be a really, really big Jeff McNeil fan because the, the changing of this baseball was like tailor-made to make Jeff McNeil the best possible player that he could ever be, and with that... While he's getting, I would say, good batted ball luck. It's not great batted ball luck because he is hitting the ball hard and he is putting it where they ain't. He's just like, he's playing straight up pepper with major league pitching. He's dominating. But also with that, like, his swing decisions have been as good, if not better, than they've ever been in his career. He's running the lowest whiff rate of his career. He's running the lowest swing rate of his career, which is pretty interesting for a guy like Jeff, even as he's increased his walk rate and has his normally low strikeout rate. So the fact that he isn't, he's like swinging at the perfect pitches every single time, which is really wonderful to see. And with the, like, the, like the kind of a little bit slightly more passive approach, he still is making as much contact with pitches in the zone as he ever has in his career. So love that Je- this is the new world of baseball, like 1974 baseball, came right in time for the rest of Jeff McNeil's prime, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, no, when Jeff's playing like this, his team is motoring. It's moving a lot better. He gets the lineup moving. And Buck even said he has to keep McNeil in the bottom of the order. He's like, the value he gives us down there is so good. I don't agree with it. I think that's no, crazy. Yeah. But you can see why Buck has continued to hit McNeil 6th, 8th, wherever he's hitting in the lineup. He's like, I top to bottom, got to be strong. That's a very old head move right there. Yeah, he's like, oh, we need the bottom of the other good. Now, I'd rather just keep McNeil at the top and get as many runs as possible whenever he could instead of like having an equal chance to score every inning. I don't give I want as many runs as I can when they happen. But also, watch out James McCann because after the McNeil double, 
He hit a big sacrifice fly to give us the lead, and he had a really good game. It was probably one of his best all-around games of the year. I said before, he had uh, he had two balls to play over 100 miles an hour. He also threw out Alcides Escobar to end an inning with, I believe, Drew Smith on the mound right after Carrasco got yanked. Good game for McCann. Happy to see that he's not lifeless. Yeah, uh, keep an eye on McCann, though. He had some wrist issues after this right. game, and he did not play the next two. So you have to keep an eye on McCann's wrist, um, whether or not he's going to hit the IL. I it doesn't seem like it. It seems like he was very much like available if needed, but they wanted to give him some rest. Big series coming up against Seattle this weekend, so maybe that's what they were thinking. I think they formally said today that he is starting tomorrow with Max okay. Scherzer for the second start in a row, which is interesting as well, but he's fine. Hey, McCann's caught a couple no-hitters. Max Scherzer wants that's to true. get on that board with the Mets no-hitter. I can feel it. That's true, but that, not, this wasn't Scherzer's game. This game is about Carlos Carrasco, and something that we've talked about a lot with Mets pitchers this year. After we did have that big rally in the sixth inning, he had a shutdown inning. Very yeah. nice and calm. You, you pitch that inning, left and ended up going two-thirds the next inning. You leave the start feeling really good. Six and two-thirds, five strikeouts, no walk, seven hits. There was a lot of contact made in those two earned runs a little bit in the beginning, but it's just like solid as hell. So solid, Carlos Carrasco. He's given us unbelievable just steadiness and legitimacy to the middle of this rotation, something that I thought we were going to have, but I think a lot of Mets fans probably didn't, and something that is really carrying this team, I think, more than a lot of people realize when the guy in the middle of your rotation who just gives you length basically every single time out one thing to note though this was the second start in a row including last week against the Braves where Carrasco was basically only throwing fastballs and change-ups so I don't know if that's something with the weather or something with the time of the year or something with the fact that he's just facing the Nationals and he doesn't really care to get the feel of a breaking pitch anywhere maybe he doesn't have the feel of those breaking pitches yet but keep an eye out that he's really become just a two-pitch guy as a guy with a very diverse arsenal for the years prior. Yeah, I think it has to probably do with the Nationals because we saw it from McGill and Taiwan too, just like peppering fastballs at these guys. Almost like, well, you're not a very good team, so we're not going to get crazy and try and get complicated and try and get fancy here. I mean, like you said, fastballs and change-ups, and he gave up, what, two earned runs against a Major League Baseball team? That's that's pretty good considering only using two pitches, really. I think it could also be a situation that we've seen a lot of pitchers who go to new teams in recent years, like specifically the Giants, come to mind with Alex Cobb and Kevin Gaussman, where if a team knows that a pitcher has a pitch or two that's significantly better than the other secondaries, like specifically secondaries, everyone has to throw at least a primary pitch. I would say fastball, but now the Giants this year are experimenting with Jacob Jr. just not throwing any fastballs at all, which is a fascinating display. But like a guy like Carrasco, where maybe they just try to deconstruct his repertoire, let him like relearn how to pitch. And they know for sure he has a feel to change up. So just throw that thing into the dirt and wait for the next one to come along. Was he your X factor coming into the year? Was Carrasco your pick? He might've been either him or McGill. Okay. Either way, it's a, it's two checks. Yeah. Looking, looking pretty good. Although <laughs> we'll talk about Ty Laura's game here in a second, but yeah, yeah. hand it off to Drew Chains. Drew Chains does his thing where he's absolutely disgusting. I have seen some Drew Chains discourse though. There's a lot of yeah. people who are saying they still like Drew Flo better. I don't know. Drew Chains to me, I, Drew Chains, I like. I like Drew Chains a lot. I mean, you're always gonna you're always gonna have like a, a bit of an impartial feeling to your first, and That's I do true. love Drew Flow. If he was, to, if he still had Flow, he'd still be Drew Flow. But there's no Flow. Yeah, there's no Flow. So it's like there's it, also no chain. But <laughs> well, no, he has a chain. Oh, he does that little gold chain. That's what I'm. That's because, why I came up okay, with that yeah, name because he's Drew wearing Chains. the chain. Yeah. But after Drew Chains does what he does, Joely came in, got the one batter he faced, Juan Soto, because that's his job. And shocker again, Joely, good. Who saw that coming? Wah, crazy. Joely came in a one-run game with a man on base to face Juan Soto and got a very lazy, casual pop-out after Drew Smith threw his 13th straight consecutive appearance to start the season. Like, these guys, we mentioned it last week, these guys are more formidable back end of the bullpen. I think a lot of Mets fans have given them credit for. And do not be surprised if these two are now just a strict B team. The guys who are going to get the, the the stat that nobody cares about holds in a lot of games. Yeah, no, they're, they're just really good at their job. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but it felt like this past week, 
A lot of Mets and Yankee fans were having a lot of conversation about pitching sure. rankings, pitching hierarchy, which is just so crazy to see like everyone on Twitter talking about it because you can really tell who knows ball and who doesn't. And it's so funny to me when I saw like for like top relief pitchers because we we got down to the relievers and I saw like Miguel Castro like fourth and I was like, what are we? What are we doing? What are we talking about here? Like there's even on the Yankees, there's so many better relievers. Like it's crazy how there's this like pro Miguel Castro propaganda right now and anti-Joelli when Joelli is really good and Miguel Castro is exactly what he's always been. Yeah, a lot of those debates were happening on Monday, which is really funny. Like, so many Twitter accounts for some reason on Monday were like, I'm going to rank top 10 pitchers between the Mets and Yankees combined and the rankings are just all over the place. Like, yeah, I give people credit for, like, procuring engagement, but I don't like that type of content. However, that pitch, Miguel Castro threw, like, probably the most gifable pitch of his entire career. A two-seamer that was, like, highlighted on Pitching Ninja with, like, 14 inches of arm side run. That just went from all the way in the other batter's box to right down the middle against Alejandro Kirk in a 3-2 pitch. Which, that's cool. But, like, there's no reason to, one, even compare these guys anymore because the trade already happened, so it's just shut up. Yeah. And, two, like, they're both pitching well. So, instead of saying one's better than the other one, like, they're both fine. Like, it just works. The Mets really need a lefty. Joel is a good lefty. Like, just get over it. There's this weird subset of Mets fans that almost like purposefully roots against the Mets because they want to be right rather than actually watch the team succeed. This happens every single day with Francisco Lindor. This happened for years with Brandon Nimmo. Like it's happening right now with people with Dom Smith. Edwin Diaz too. Edwin Diaz still every single day even though he's actually one of the best relievers in all of baseball. And I saw a crazy thing from Rob Pearsall on Twitter, um, former Metsmerized writer. Edwin Diaz has now spent more time in his career with the Mets than the Mariners. That feels weird and wrong, but... Yeah, it, bizarre. It, it makes sense, though, because he, what, had, like, two years kind of with the Mariners? Two or three years? Yeah, the, the trade happened, like, in 2019. It was a really long time <laughs> ago. A really, really long time. I was in college. I was working as a... <laughs> I was working as a campaign accountant in Columbus, Ohio, in a law firm. Yeah, it's a long time ago. It's a long, long time ago. But as you said, Edwin, one of the best relievers in all baseball, ties the bow, put in the books, game one, the Mets get the win. Now on to game two, we had what we are now coining Poop Fest. Uh, we've said it, I feel like, in a lot of episodes recently. The Mets are due for one Poop Fest, it seems like a series. No more, no less. No, no more, no less. God forbid we sweep. That's just, that's something that the Mets are allergic to, as we know. Tyler McGill looked human, looked not good. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. It's going to happen. And I got to say, I like that he came back and was like, this start is not going to define me. He came out with big words. He's like, I'm going to be good. I just like don't even really care. Like it happens. This is what happens to pitchers every once in a while. But he did stink. Yeah, he was terrible. And also like you had a great feeling coming off this game after a come from behind win on Monday night. P. Alonso hits a big first inning, two-run homer, and we left the inning with a three-run lead. So you figure you're handing the ball to one of your best pitchers against one of the worst teams in baseball with a three-run lead, coming off some good feelings from a win. You just, in the back of your head, you're starting to think you feel the sweep, and you feel a sweep, first sweep of the year in your mind, and then he just got, just hit immediately. The Nationals just seem to really be very ready for what Tyler McGill does start in and start out and they had a game plan for him i guess possibly but the final line was almost as ugly as it gets as ugly a start as tyler mcgill's ever had an ugly such an ugly start it put popped his era like almost two full runs one in the third innings pitched eight hits eight earned one walk one strikeout literal disaster but even with that even with that bad start 
even with giving up two monster home runs to Juan Soto and Nelson Cruz. There were only three hard-hit balls in total, and two of them were smoked by one of the best statistical hitters ever through a certain point of his career and one of the statistical best hitters in this entire league for the last five years. So it's just like a lot of singles and a lot of nationals just putting the bat in the ball and just finding a way. It just shows like the power that the long ball can have because you get the guys on base, you hit them home. That's, that's, Time together. It's a lot of runs. That's a lot of runs that you can get on one swing of the bat in theory, you know? Um, yeah, and I think, I think either Riley Adams or one of those nondescript Nationals players smoked a double that scored the year two or three as well. Like, okay. there were guys on base, and then he gave up the big hit, which is, like, the opposite of what's been going on for Tyler McGill all year. Usually there's been nobody on base, and he gets a big hit that, like, finds a glove or something, and then he gets a strikeout after. But, I don't know. I feel like he was kind of alluding to this for the last few starts. He's just, like, Tyler McGill, we love him so much. I think he's a big part of this team and a big part of the Mets' future, but he's just not a guy who's like who he's not a two seven pitcher right now ERA wise as much as I also think ERA is Fugazi that's just not who he is and this kind of reminds me not to this extent I don't want to scare any Mets fans but like just to the way Taiwan Walker started last year where every single start for the first two months of the year like he was doing things well and all the things he was doing bad was getting covered up and it's like oh my god this guy's a two five ERA what an amazing signing by the Mets we have a new ace it wasn't really true and Tyler McGill is better than Taiwan Walker but he's still a guy who throws sixty percent fastballs with two secondaries that are good but neither have made like that real jump jump yet to turn him into like an actual major league ace well I don't know if you saw our good friend Todd Zeal post game was talking about Tyler McGill and was saying thinks he was tipping his pitches. He didn't say exactly what he saw that could have been tipping him, but he goes, the way the Nationals were laying off the changeup, the way that they were just so ready for the fastball, maybe he was tipping his pitches. And to Todd Zeal's credit, you know, he was a gamer. He had some pretty long, lengthy MLB career, so this is something that I could definitely see him doing. He was saying the same thing about Jacob deGrom when he had that, like, super rough start all those years ago where Terry Collins put the arm on his shoulder. It was like, everything's going to be okay kind of had that same moment again a little bit. I know everyone loves to draw the comparisons between Jacob deGrom and Tyler McGill, and me and you both know it's crazy. It's a little insane. But it is kind of nuts that, like, same thing. He had another rough start, could have been tipping pitches just like deGrom was. Like, the parallels are so strangely similar. Especially because when you kind of tear apart McGill's game and the pitch selection of the Nationals, there's a part of that that does make sense. Like Tyler McGill threw kind of like low for his season average with 55% fastballs. Nationals swung at half of them, back on the ball for a lot of them, including just foul balls and all the balls put in play like I mentioned. And there were no swings and misses in that changeup at all. And only five total swings on his changeup in general. And he threw almost 30 of them. And if you look at the pitch location of those changeups, it wasn't like he was missing his spots. A lot of them kind of dropped in for called strikes. And it seemed like the Nationals were kind of sitting back, waiting for the fastball. And then there were a few changes that did jump on, and that did happen. But also with that fastball, like, Tyler McGill just kind of missed a lot of the black that we've seen him get for the first couple starts of the year. Like I said, he didn't really get any whiffs on it. Whether the Nationals knew it was coming or not, he now just sits between 94 and 97, 96, rather than 96 and 99, like we saw at the beginning of the year. That was never going to last. It almost kind of makes me think also that the Mets pushed him back a day with the extra off days from last week because they maybe they can see he's kind of gassed, which almost gives me more fear than than any other results that have actually happened with him. The fact that the Mets internally thought he already needed an extra day of rest on May 12th, it's kind of like everything that we said preseason about McGill is more true now than it was for the last month. Like we had that, cra- it was kind of like like when you're dating somebody new and you have that like month where it's the honeymoon period yeah. where like you have an idea about somebody, then you have a month you're like, this is the greatest person on earth. <laughs> I want to I want to be with them 14 hours a day, six days a week. And then after a month, you're like, okay, well, th- now I understand exactly what this is. That was a lot of fun. We all have to understand, put our expectations back to where they probably were, which were optimistic and still very good. I don't think this one star kills his rest of the season projection as much as I think it will actually bring Mets fans back to the average. Yeah, not that it matters, but like in the Cy Young Award 
you know, odds. He had like top ten odds. That see, that's just that's what I'm saying. Like the the hype was too happen. hype. But me and you both know he's going to be a very good pitcher still on this team. Of course. Just not one of the best pitchers in the league. Like, he might have been getting some crazy talk about or that people were even theorizing, which we know that just wasn't true. I also thought it was super strange in this game that there was no mound visits when he was struggling. They just kind of let him go. Well, I mean, because what are you going to tell him? Like, hey, it seems to really be hitting it. You just got you got to get it with the guy. You got to tell him something like... Maybe, but maybe. it's gonna happen. Like, it almost, like you're gonna call Mount visit in the first inning for Tyler McGill at this yeah. point. Like, that's almost more damaging. I don't know. The Mets, this Mets team, and doesn't seem to be a team that does stuff like that. And Tyler McGill doesn't seem to be a guy who, not that he wouldn't be a guy who responds to that. But he doesn't seem he seems like a guy who'd be like, I'm fine. Like, I'm fine. And this was like, yeah, there's so many things in this game that were like normal for Tyler McGill. It's just they weren't offering any changeups and they weren't swinging and missing basically at all. Which I don't know if that's more about the Nationals, about Tyler McGill, or about signs or whatever. But it's just I don't know. This happens. Like he throws a lot of fastballs. The second year in the league, Tyler McGill is still throwing what under 150 innings above a ball in yeah. total. Like let's just let's just take it back. He's always a guy who's going to have an ERA close to the four than three. Just watch him and enjoy. Yeah, no, definitely. I don't I don't think it's anything to freak out about. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later too. But the more frustrating part I think about this game than McGill just getting shelled was that we touched Aaron Sanchez hard in the first inning, and then the bats just kind of disappeared. They could totally disappear, and it was, like, really annoying because it was similar to Patrick Corbin. We were just, like, smoking the ball. And that's 11 hard-hit balls in five innings against Aaron Sanchez. M- more than two per inning. Like, it's ridiculous. And there was a point after this, the first inning of this game where he retired 11 in a row. That's crazy. And then there were three total innings where there wasn't a hit besides an infield single, I think, by Jeff McNeil. Yeah. Maybe even four total innings. And he only had one strikeout this whole time. Wasn't missing any bats. Like, it's just... I don't know. Mets just had some bad juju these first few games. Nimmo had three hits. He was, like, really smoking the ball. Lindor hit the ball hard. That was just one of those games. It's baseball, Susan. That's baseball, John. <laughs> uh, shout out to Nagosik, though, who made his appearance for the Mets, his yearly appearance, it feels like, or one or two appearances that he makes a year. And he gave him no earned runs again. He's gone, what, about six innings and hasn't given up an earned run? Earned him a cent down because, you know, he's basically useless the rest of the week. But thanks for pitching, Steven. You give him the go six shit all the time, but he's like a fine guy to have in the back end of a 40-man roster. You can just come into a game where your starting pitcher gave up eight runs and save your bullpen for the games when it actually matters and doesn't really matter. Also, shout out to Trevor Williams because these two guys combined for no earned runs for six and two-thirds innings. And I kind of had that like half a moment before the ninth inning of this game after the Rangers had just won a big game where I was like, maybe the Mets will come back again. Yeah. Like, this Nationals bullpen sucks. Like, why not us? Well, they got those two hits to start the, the ninth inning. You're like, man, on. Here we, I think even Gary goes, here we go again. It's not over <laughs> yet. And it's like, man, we are so, as a Mets fan base, we love the highs and we hate the lows. Like, we, we are such a roller coaster of emotions. And only, I think, Mets fans would buy into two leadoff hits down 8-3 to three in the ninth inning. Be like, we got a chance. We're back. We're back. We got this. Right where we wanted them. Literally, I, I was talking on the phone with my dad, and I was riding my bike to a bar that actually watched the Ranger game. I had to get you know, multiple screens. I wanted people to watch both. I didn't want to stay home. And uh, McGill just given up the eighth run when I was on the phone with him, and he was like, he was like telling me at bat by a bat. I was like, it's Aaron Sanchez. We can score five more runs against Aaron Sanchez. Who cares? We didn't. We could have, but it happens. He lost a game. Poop fest. Yeah, poop fest. Good for one of those a series, but only one. Only good for one. Now, game three. This we got the series on the line. There's a chance here to lose a series. We know the Mets didn't. And it was really, it was nice to see that we got out early again. Marky Cheerios, Mark Canna, showing he deserves a little more play because he just keeps getting hits. Granted, they're mostly singles, 
But he just Almost keeps always. getting hits, and his at-bats are always so good. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said some things about Canada not hitting towards the top of the order, and I think that is true sometimes. I think we saw there was a situation in Monday's game, I believe, where he came up in like the fourth or the fifth with two on, two out, and he just didn't have a very good at-bat. One of the few he's had all year. But this game hitting six, Jonah Doan. Is Jonah Doan? Jonah Don? Jonah Don? Jo- I, I don't know. Jonah Doan? I'm going to say Jonah Doan because it's just kind of more fun to say. Jonah Doan just walked the world. Walked three guys to make bring Canada up at the base of low two outs, and they got a nice single. Got two runs. This is literally the only two runs the Mets would need the entire game. Yeah, Marky Cheerios. We call him that for a reason. He's reliable. He's dependable. He's and not, he's fibrous. He's fibrous. He's got no flair. There's no flavor, but he will be there for you, and he will make your heart stronger. That's what Marky Cheerios <laughs> does for you. I also shout out this first inning. Brandon Drew Leloff walk extended his on base streak to twenty three games. Can we? Uh, where's the checkbook at? Can we? Can we start writing checks for this guy? I don't want him to ever leave the Mets. I hope he doesn't. He also had another walk and another hit in this game. On base three times, back to back games out of the leadoff spot. He's just an elite ball player. He's just so good. He's just really so so good. It's crazy that he's our fourth outfielder. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. The offense just kind of annoyingly went quiet again for the second game in a row though after the first. Inning. Tomas Nito had the ribby in the fourth. Marcana hit a hit a nice insurance home run in the ninth, and then it was just kind of like lulled down. It's even just like a two and a half hour game. Like everything was really chill, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that Taiwan Walker just completely put the Nationals asleep with splitters, two seamers, curveballs. It was just throwing a lot of junk at them, getting the ball on the ground, and not letting anyone do damage. Yeah, he was very very efficient. He also made a great play in the field, tagging out Juan Soto and kind of doing the little little baby AI to him. He treated him like he was Tyron Liu and just kind of tagged him out and stood over him and Soto kind of gave him a little push and Taiwan's like, dude, have you seen the size of me? Like, I'm an actual, like, tank. You cannot move me. It's not possible. Well, we should expand on that because that was one of the craziest double plays I've ever seen in a Major League Baseball game. Juan Soto was on second base with nobody out after a leadoff double and there was a ball hit the third base, Luis Guillorme. Luis Guillorme, the absolute gem that he is. King Louis. Guillermo saw the corner of his eye. Soto was going to try and break the third on the throw. Guillermo just threw the ball behind him, got caught in a little rundown. That's when Taiwan tagged him out at third base. As this was happening, Josh Bell was breaking for second, threw the ball a second, missed throw into the outfield. Luckily, starting Marte. Howie Rose was losing his mind over this. Marte backed up the rundown incredibly. He kind of picked the ball like six, eight feet behind the behind the dirt, and he threw a dart to third base where three guys were standing but not actually on it, and Francisco Lindor just slightly caught it and tagged Josh Bell out for your casual like five, four, one, throw six, one in there. One, yeah, nine, six double play. Yeah, no, just how we draw it up. That's, that's the yeah. most routine double play that the Mets have ever turned. Again, everything was just kind of going their way, and while the offense wasn't fantastic, it was good enough. Not much else to say here. The Mets did their thing. Edwin Diaz gave up a home run in the ninth to Juan Soto. Juan Soto, who cares? Whatever. He's, he's just like one of the best hitters in this game that exists in all of Major League Baseball, and we win another series. The Mets continue to roll, continue to be in first place, continue to show that they are one of the best teams in all of baseball. I don't care if you're beating the Nationals. I don't care if you're beating the Marlins. I don't care if you're beating anybody. You have to beat the bad teams. Right now, the Mets are beating everybody. Haven't beaten the Marlins yet. Haven't played them one time. But can I drop a funny and interesting Juan Soto stat on you? Yeah, drop it on me. Juan Soto, in the game against Tyler McGill, hit his seventh home run of the season. That was his first non-solo home run of the year. God. How crazy is that? God, that that team's so messed up. Just hit Juan Soto leadoff. Why do they even bother to hit, like, Cesar Hernandez? At that point, yeah, right? Like, Cesar Hernandez. You want Cesar Hernandez to get more at-bats this season than Juan Soto? No one's on base anyway. Oh, I'll see his Escobar. That guy stuck. I don't even like seeing him. No. It's, and that pretty much wraps up the series. Uh, there's not a lot to talk about, like we said. But 
We did go to Twitter and we asked you guys for some mailbag questions. We want to answer the questions from the viewers at home because you guys do such a great job supporting us. Our last episode really killed it. It was one of our better episodes that we've ever had performance-wise. So let's go ahead, crawl through Twitter, see what we got, and start answering some questions because I saw a few and there were some good ones. And you know what? I'm doing a little nepotism here. I'm starting off with a question from my dad. <laughs> and my dad asked, does King Louis deserve more starts at third with Esco bombs in a bit of a slump? Shout out to my dad for using all the nicknames. Love that for the culture. Does he though? Does King Louis deserve a little bit more playing time? I'm starting to believe he does. He's just like a one. He's a good baseball player. He's a very good baseball player. By no means will you ever be like, he is the best at his position. Never will you hype him up and be like, wow, can't wait to go to the game and watch Luis Guillorme play. But for the way this mess team plays and for the value with his glove, he gets on base. He definitely deserves a little bit more playing time, kind of playing into that role we spoke about last year where it's like he will end up getting probably 400 at-bats this year just because he can play third, short, second base, and you can give guys days off and just plug him right in. I kind of want to tie that question into another question that was asked by It's Nico YT, and it was, who do you think is the best fit for the DH spot and who needs more playing time? Because I think just the way that Luis Guillermo has hit enough this year, plus the unbelievable glove he brings to three different infield positions. Like, there's no reason he shouldn't be in the lineup more. Kind of similar to how Santiago Espinal has just, like, scrabbed one of the Blue Jays' starting roles so far this season. Big credit to you for that one. You were on Santiago Espinal far before anybody else in the whole world. I was world. like, this guy's really good. <laughs> similar to Espinal, is a guy who's just, like, kind of hitting 250 with a 750 OPS right now, which... You wouldn't know it, but that's like significantly higher than league average at both spots. He's getting on base with a ridiculous clip. He's seeing tons of pitches. And again, he plays slick defense at every single infield position. He's probably the Mets' best defender almost on the infield. Like, Francisco Lindor is very good, of course. He has a little bit of the throws have been a little bit weird this year, but Luis Guillermo just does things on a daily basis in the field that there's no reason not to have him in the lineup when he is hitting better than the league average. Like, this just sounds to me like a guy who's good at baseball. Yeah, he's a good ball player. And especially like how good his glove is, you can give a guy like Francisco Lindor, a day off and put him at DH. You can give Jeff McNeil at second base a day off or put him in the outfield even if you want to give Cano or Marte or even Nimmo a day off. Like It gives this team so much more flexibility that he can play all three of those infield positions and give someone a rest and keep that bat still in line because his glove is that good. And then in terms of the DH, if let's just say Luis Guillermo is not playing, I mean, it's got to be JD, right? Yeah, well, that was kind of where I was going with this. We're at the point now in the season where the thing I said and the offseason was true that I did like all these acquisitions between Eduardo Escobar, Mark Hanna, Starling Marte, but none of them are really the super sustainable hitters. I think a lot of people made them out to me. Canna is the most sustainable because he sees the most pitches and gets on base a significant amount, but he's the only guy out of that trio, even before the year, I pegged for like a rock-solid WRC plus at 115. Like Marte and Escobar, now we've seen each of them go through these insane cold stretches where it becomes a situation where they're not hitting the ball that hard or for that much power and they're not getting on base when they're cold. And that's something that when it's happening, like you might as well just put J.D. Davis in the lineup and put Guillaume in the field because at least Guillaume is giving you a very solid skill set and J.D. Davis absolutely hits the ball really hard as much as possible. He's one of the highest hard hit rates in the league, one of the highest expected Wobas in the league. Like he's just roping the ball. Have you been seeing that graphic where it's like the yeah. ex-Woba and it's Mike Trout J.D. Davis, Jordan Alvarez, it's like some, yeah. someone doesn't fit in this list. <laughs> but, like, no matter what happens with J.D. Davis, as long as we've had him, even before we got him and he was still an Astro, like a weird quadruple-A prospect, he just hits the ball hard. Like, he just hits the ball hard very consistently. And that's a guy who I'd want in the lineup more often than not. And I think at the end of the day, if Luis Guillorme is playing the field 
and you're kind of talking about comparing Eduardo Escobar and J.D. Davis. Like, as far as a hitting projection goes, purely hitting projection, the only part of it, their game that we're looking at, J.D. Davis will likely be a more valuable hitter after a full season than Eduardo Escobar. It's just it's just a fact. Yeah, if you're playing Eduardo at third or J.D. at third, obviously you pick yeah, Eduardo. Yeah, then Eduardo's definitely the better player, for sure. And I won't say he's not. Eduardo Escobar's still a good player. He's just mired in, like, basically a one-for-30 slump right now. Yeah. Similar what we saw uh, Sterling Marte do earlier. Similar what we saw Pete Alonso do two weeks ago. Similar to how Francisco Lindor was last week. Like This happens to baseball players. But the only difference is that Escobar, when he's not going right, he's not seeing that many pitches, and he's not really getting on base. Like We saw him do a lot at the beginning of the year, but I also caution Mets fans about that. He did the exact same thing last year. It's really weird that Eduardo Escobar likes taking walks in April, but I wish he would just do it every month. As soon but... as May comes around, he's like, I'm done being patient. I'm swinging. It's warm. I'm trying to get it, take some hacks, but like that the downside of that is that you get these stretches like now where it looks like he can't buy a base hit. His average has sunk like 150 points in the last two weeks. His on base percentage is cratering. His slugging percentage is cratering. But that's just the Eduardo Escobar skill set. He he is a guy who's more of like at this point in his career, your fourth or fifth infielder rather than your second or third. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair. It's it's sad for me to say because I love me some Eduardo Escobar bombs for sure. He's a great guy to have in the team for sure. I love Eduardo Escobar. He's a major league ball player. That was the best. That was that's why they got him. He's a professional. He's just not like a guy who you should hang your hat on as your five hitter every night. For sure, for sure. I'm I'm definitely behind that. And then we also should probably talk about Dom Smith too, since we're talking about the DH conversation. A bunch of people, you know, chimed in. J Dog, Josai, a bunch of people were asking about Dom. What the deal is with him? What's the future looking like for Dom? Because he had that four-hit game, got a couple hits a little bit after that. He's kind of done nothing before that and after. And the serious question comes up as to be, what's what's the deal with Dom Smith? What do we do? Because there are guys in the minors who are raking, and it's not like Dom's swinging a good enough bat to keep him on the roster right now, and I think he still has options. Uh, it's weird because, of course, we we picked Dom over Cano, but again, that's that's a huge W. That was That was... Dom did his job. I'll always remember that for Dom Smith, that he got Robinson Cano cut. But, I mean, like, Daniel Polk is hitting the ball well. Nick Plummer, all, you said, wait, is hitting the ball well. There, I'll talk about those two guys in a second, but there's just no way that that's actually, like, there's no way that that decision wasn't made before that day. Like, there's no way that the Mets brass were sitting in a room and was like, Dom Smith got four hits. That did it for us. Like, they, you know going in what the hell's going to happen. This isn't a team run by imbeciles anymore. We have data. The Wall Street Journal reported on Monday that we have, like, 54 data analysts now working on staff, one of the highest numbers in baseball. We have Steve Cohen's just been pulling guys from point seventy two. You know what you do if you're a high-level analyst for point seventy two? You don't work on whims. You work on data. You work on numbers. You work on certainties. You trying to tell me Steve Cohen didn't get $14 billion off whim? No, Steve Cohen didn't, didn't walk into $14 billion. He got it very acutely and accurately and concisely, but that's neither here nor there. But with that, I think it is it is going to start to bear the question of how valuable Dom Smith is to this team, especially when there are a lot of other guys on the roster who can play first base. They don't play first base well. There's no one on the roster, including Pete Alonso, is even <laughs> within, like, within, <laughs> within eye shot of Dom Smith's glove at first base. But all the other smart teams in baseball show us that gloves at first base aren't really that valuable. The two teams that you should be looking at the most who are talking about first base and not giving a shit about the defense there, the Tampa Bay Rays and the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers played Jed Jerko there years ago. They played well, Jason Peterson. They have Rowdy, who doesn't play good defense. They had Eduardo Escobar playing first base last year just to get his bat in the lineup. And the Rays, G. Manchoy, Mike Mike Brasso, who's now also on the Brewers, which is funny, Yandy Diaz, like, First base defense is irrelevant. It doesn't matter as much as Keith Hernandez like to tell you it does. No, last year the Dodgers for a lot of the games threw Albert Pujols out there. Old 46-year-old Albert Pujols. Yeah. The Red Sox were throwing Kyle Schwarber out there. Like, it really, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Not that I know that for a fact, but it doesn't seem like, based on the smartest teams in baseball, that it really does. So with that, 
Like, if that's Dom Smith's best skill, it's if Paul DeYoung got sent down to the minor leagues because he couldn't hit and was playing good defense at shortstop, yeah. there's really no logical reason why Dom Smith can't go down to the minor leagues, maybe just get some, if nothing else, get some confidence back, just rope the ball. C.J. Abrams got sent down after a rough first month in the bigs, hit two home runs his first day down there. Like, sometimes you got to just go down there. Joe Waddell has, like, a 50% barrel rate right now in AAA over the last week. Maybe you just got to, like, get a grip sometimes and go down there. Or maybe that's just, I don't know, whatever, I'm not going to say it. But there are two guys the Mets have in AAA who play positions that can help them. Kind of, not really great fielders, but they're smoking the ball, and they're Daniel Palka and Nick Plummer. Both see a lot of pitches, both draw walks, and both have hit tanks at AAA level, like and have shown good exit velocities while they do it. Especially Palka has been the Statcast king over the course of his career. Yeah, some of the hardest hit balls in the Statcast era. Somehow, Daniel Palka. Yep. So, at this point, the Mets just kind of need another bat on the bench that they can trust late in games when they're mixing and matching, and there's. Why not give one of those two a shot, especially if Dom has an option? I think a big sign, too, is that Mark Hanna, Buck, Buck told him to start taking reps at first base. Get ready. So it seems like Mark Hanna might be stepping in as possibly this backup first base role now. Also, J.D. can do it in a pinch. Eduardo Escobar could do it in a pinch. Jeff McNeil has said before he can do it in a pinch. Jeff can like, do it all. That, exactly. But that's the essence of modern first base. Like, you can't. Anyone can play first base. And if Pete was still, like, a morbid disaster at, on defense, like, Dom would have more of a role. But he's just, now he's just fine. Like, he's just not that good. Yeah. Some Mets fans tell you he was great. Some Mets fans will tell you he was awful. But he's just he's just below average, and that's comfortable when he has one of the best bats in the league. Yeah, so I think probably this this next weekend series, this next homestand is probably big for Dom to figure out what's really going to go on. I don't think they're going to send him down like on Saturday, like if he has a, a yeah, rough stretch. It would be Monday or whenever the homestand does end. Something to keep an eye on, though, for sure. Dom Smith not particularly playing well. No, and those two guys in AAA are actually hitting. So that if those two, if the AAA roster stunk, if the Mets didn't get that random depth and they still had Khalil Lee as their best major league depth, who has been atrocious this year. Yeah. So whatever the opposite of a pat in the back is, I'm going to give that to myself because I thought Khalil Lee could actually be a major league difference maker this year. Wrong, I guess. <laughs> but I'm not saying he still can't get it, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen in the immediate future. But the fact that the Mets have two guys who are like quasi-major league bats who are sitting there in AAA means that it'd probably be worth getting one of them a shot as the team desperately looks for power. Yeah, let's, uh, definitely. Uh, let's go to Richie Dordas, who's always been a big fan of the podcast. What are your honest thoughts on Francisco Lindor? It's crazy to me how his numbers are still above average while going through a slump. I'm going to give you a simple answer. It's because he's good. That's what happens when good players go through slumps. Their numbers are still good. Francisco Lindor, granted, has been going through a little bit longer of a slump than we would like, and he has, I feel like, been a little less patient at the plate. I don't have the exact numbers to prove that. His K rate's up. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like he's not walking as much as striking out more. He is walking a little bit more, but his striker rate has also gone up okay. with it. So, like, it's going to happen. It's a long season. Like you said, his numbers are still good despite going through this slump. You got, you know, you've listened to us for a long time now. We're not worried about Francisco Lindor now and probably not ever. Francisco Lindor, so far this season, has 115 WRC+, plus, which is basically his career average. Yeah. If Francisco Lindor, because has that cool little table at the bottom of their player pages where if a player played in this ballpark, how many home runs would they have? He'd have eight home runs if he played in Yankee Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I mean, as Chris Woodward mentioned last week, I mean, it's basically Williams point out there, and I kind of liked all the Yankee people were leaning into that, but Francisco Lindor is just being a little bit better than league average. They started out being really hot, and now he's really cold. I'm sure in two weeks he'll be really hot, and maybe after that he'll be really cold. Like, in a perfect world, I would like who's like who's going to be one of our better players to be a little more consistent. His skill set I've always thought was consistent over time, but you don't watch a guy every day, you don't really realize it. Some kid was in my uh, DMs today. Josh Flowers, just a listener, he gets in my DMs sometimes just because I'll answer questions if anyone wants to DM me something. I'm not going to answer all of your questions. There's some people who send me fantasy baseball questions like 14 times a day. I'm not going to answer all of them. But if you want to have a conversation, I'm down to talk to anybody out there. But... He said, I wish Lindor was more like Pete, where he was like a steady and consistent player all the time. And I was like, 
Pete was one for 30 last week. Yeah. Like, every hitter in baseball does this. Like, even the best hitters of all time do this. Like, we've seen Mike Trout go through slumps at times. Jordan Alvarez had, like, a 230 average for the first three weeks of the season. Like, this is what hitters do. It's not easy to hit. You have to do it every single day. Like, sometimes it gets monotonous. Francisco Lindor's also still been hitting the ball hard. He's not, like, barreling it up a ton, but he's still making solid contact. He's still striking out less than league average, even though it's more than he struck out last year early in the season. Like, he's still fine. He's a good baseball player. Mets fans might have been expecting the best for him though originally from the trade after seeing those 2018 2019 monster years in cleveland where he had like 40 home runs and 30 doubles but there's also a different run environment in baseball like there's less than 50 hitters in the whole league right now with an ops over 800 a stat that you like to say 14 times an episode it's crazy this is not a line anymore like his wrc plus being over 100 same as ops plus with a 730 ops means that we kind of have to recalibrate what we think about with ops especially the way baseball is being played right now yeah especially since they changed the baseballs and the league average ops now is what like 660 or 670 i think it's like 672 yeah it's disgustingly low thanks rob appreciate you this is so much more fun to watch singles than home runs don't you guys all agree I mean, definitely. All the owners do. Yeah. Get to pay the hitters a lot less, and we know the pitchers aren't going to be thrown as much as they usually are. So that's a conspiracy. No one's making, no one, no one's making money in arbitration, yeah. man. Well, that's a conspiracy theory we could talk about in another episode, maybe. I'm going to let you pick one of the uh, Twitter questions here to answer. Okay. I already talked about the McGill stuff, so I think most of those listeners' questions got their stuff answered, yeah. uh, just that game segment. Oh, this one I like from Ethan. Mets News 30. I thought it was an interesting question. That would be a good one to close out after we just talked about games and actual production for the first 45 minutes of this. What Met player do you want to be extended the most? So, like, if we could only pick one of these guys, who would you want it to be the most? I think this is actually breathe a very interesting discussion because these three guys are all really good at baseball. Brandon Nimmo, Edwin Diaz, and Chris Bassett, among other impending free agents, of course. But I think these are the three most marquee ones. And I would like to hear your answer. If, not saying this is an actuality, this is just purely hypothetical for the Mets Up podcast. If there was only one you could extend, and there was the, this is the one guy you would want to extend the most, which of those three would you pick? Brandon Nimmo. Brandon Nimmo is my choice. His ability, I was kind of leaning there, too. His ability to get on base, he's also playing really, really good center field again. Like He's just probably a really good center fielder. Like I, I think the conversation ends there. Is like He's a really good center fielder. One of the top in the game, obviously, is no Mike Trout. But if you're talking about the best center fielders in baseball— I think Brandon Nimmo legitimately has to be in the conversation with his ability to get on base. He doesn't strike out. He's hitting for more power now, and he plays a great center field. That's a, that's a franchise player right there. Lock him up. The first round pick that we talked about all those years ago when he first got picked, we're finally start to see it really, truly come to fruition. And as much as I like Bassett and as much as I like Diaz, we know that there's always guys that you can find on the market that can do those things. You just can't find a center fielder like Brandon Nimmo really anywhere in baseball outside of like the premier, premier guys, which we're not going to get. No, and if Brandon Nimmo did make it to free agency, he would get a lot of money. He would probably get something. He'd probably get more money than Starling Marte just got from the Mets this year. Definitely. You're probably looking at five years of $25 million per for Brandon Nimmo. If that sounds crazy to the Mets fans, that's really the going rate for a center fielder who is a b- has better than average barrel rate. He plays good defense in center field. He's still very much in his athletic prime. He walks more than almost anybody in baseball. He chases less than almost anybody in baseball. He strikes out less than almost anybody in baseball. This guy has literally... A perfect skill set. I was just about to say, these are all things that, like, he can just continue to do. Like, this isn't like he's getting lucky or he's, like, playing above his, like, skill. Like, the way he plays his game is very repeatable because he's that good. No, he's truthfully, truthfully and honestly, one of the better players in baseball that doesn't get the respect he deserves. Like, 
I can't even imagine the way he's developed this far and how like how much confidence I had in this guy when he was a prospect and how much people who at first, again, I mentioned last episode, it was just like the few people who followed me on Twitter and basically my dad and my friends were like, this guy's not that good. I don't know why you keep saying this. To now actually being like basically the second or third most valuable player in this entire team who has almost no holes in his game whatsoever. And the only hole in his game is power, but he still has an above average barrel rate. So I feel like the power just will come. And even if it doesn't come immediately, I think Brandon was a guy who you give a long contract to and he'll just probably just pick up more power when he gets older and he like just chooses to do that when he gets a little slower and moves to a corner outfield spot where he'll still have play really good defense. His ability to get on base at the top of the order like that is just so great. He's like a 400 on base percentage for his career. That's crazy. That's nuts. That's so sick. It's 415 right now with a 290 batting average. Of course, I don't really care about batting average, but the fact that Brandon Nimmo, a guy who has kind of been a passive in the past, has now just like really fine-tuned his swing decisions to being perfect all the time, it's incredible. The only knock on Brandon Nimmo is now and for, will forever be durability. But I've said this time and time again. You're only a guy, an off-injured player until you're not. Yeah. Like sometimes it just happens. You just stop getting injured. Trey Turner was a guy who couldn't stay healthy in his career. Now he's like one of baseball's Iron Men. Like sometimes it just clicks, or sometimes you just hit your physical maturity. Like I don't know what they're having out in the water in Wyoming. Maybe a few years now, like being with this major league team, getting good nutrients. Hopefully, Brandon was stretching. He's just such a good baseball player. And this is not a knock on Edwin Diaz or Chris Bats no. at all. Like we've sung their praises infinitely on this show. Edwin Diaz slider might be the best pitch in baseball right now. It looks like a frisbee. It's completely unhittable. He's throwing 99 miles an hour. He's really confident. Like, he thinks he's one of the best closers in baseball. And there is an argument to be made that he's firmly in the top three right now, if not in the top two. Yeah. Just based on the guy who is number two, Liam Hendricks, his organization still uses a pen and pencil. <laughs> That's part of it. But, and Bassett, too. Like, Bassett's just steady as hell. Like, I, Bassett's a guy who I'd want in this rotation for the next few years because he's just something you'll never have to worry about. Like, he'll never be great. No. But, like, you can throw him out there third game of the season, third game of a potential playoff series, and he'll give you five or six innings every single time, bar none, and he will dominate the bad team. What's really cool about this, you know, being a Mets fan right now is there's a world where we just keep all three of those guys because we have an owner that's willing to spend. Like, how great is that? Like, if if we started this podcast a few years ago with this team, we'd go, man, we really do have to pick one. There's a really good chance we keep all three of these guys, and that would be so sick because they're all really, really good, like you said. Or at least two of them, because there are some pretty unbelievable free agents next offseason, two of them being Trey Turner and Aaron Judge. Yeah. Who, like, I figured if the Mets did get one of them, then Brandon would probably be gone and sign, like, a nice $25 million contract to play for, I don't know, like, the Astros probably. The Rockies. Forever. (laughs) That'd be bizarre. He would, he could win MVP in Colorado. He was a Rocky fan growing up. There you go. Yeah, Wyoming, closest closest team is Den- uh, in Denver. We won't but, have to worry about that anyway. Yeah, all those guys are really good. But I just think Brandon Nemo has very clearly taken this step in front of our eyes and put himself in an elite elite tier of Major League Baseball players, a tier that he always kind of was in secretly, just in a smaller sample. Like when we, every time we said that Brandon was like a top ten WRC plus over the last three years, like it wasn't wrong. Brandon was one of the lowest chase rates in baseball. Like compare comparable to guys like Mike Trout and Alex Bregman. It was never wrong. Like, yeah. He always had these skills. He was just never on the field for a long enough time consistently to put it together. And of course, we hope that continues, even though as we sing his praises here for 10 minutes at the end of this podcast, but I just like watching him play baseball. And it's clear that this team has a different level when he's doing this from the leadoff spot. Yeah, it's it's sick how much he gets on base. It, just, it really jumpstarts this lineup. And hopefully we get to see him get on base a little bit more this weekend as we have the ever so anticipated Seattle Mariners coming to town it is the Jared Kelenic versus Edwin Diaz series and hopefully we get to see Edwin Diaz face Jared Kelenic 
in all three games. That would be great. We'd be feeling good if we see Edwin Diaz versus Kalanick in all three games. I mean, it's almost un- impossible to happen because there's no way that Jared Kalanick's playing like all three games of the series. Like he's just not really an everyday player right now for the Mariners. They have they have a lot of ball players out there. He's in one a buck forty. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm still nervous. I'm still nervous. I'm not gonna lie. Just because I never I I like the guy. I don't want to see him play well this weekend by any means. I hope he goes 0 for 10 so that the discourse and the conversation can just stop at stop right there. Because as we know, sometimes there are Mets fans that live very much in the in the present. And if you see Jared Kelnick have a rough weekend, there's going to be people screaming, we won the trade, which that's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear after the series. Well, there's inklings of that rhetoric coming already. Today in the radio broadcast, either Howie or Wayne said like, I think the Mets tide might be turning on this trade. You don't watch Cano every single day. You forget that you're paying him fifty million dollars for the next two years. And you're watching Edwin Diaz dominate hitters on a, on a night in, night out basis. You can maybe trick yourself. If they won the trade. I'm not going to say that, of course, no. but it will be fun to have all that story and stuff happening. Also, Edwin Diaz facing his original team, a team that signed him when he was probably like a 16, 15 year old. It just there is a lot of storylines in this series for two teams that play each other literally once every three years. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited. I love I like the Mariners a lot. It's a team that like if I were to ever root for an American League team, I like the Mariners a lot. They've always been great to me whenever I've worked with them as well. So shout out to the Mariners. We've got some really fun pitching matchups this weekend. Like with like maybe not marquee matchups in every single game. But there's guys to keep an eye out for in every single game, which I like. Yeah, certainly. Friday night, blackout game. Mark and I both be in attendance there. Hopefully, this is my second in a, uh, consecutive blackout no-hitter. But Max Scherzer against Marco Gonzalez. Marco Gonzalez, is a he's a fun pitcher. He's just one of those classic guys who throws sinkers, change-ups, some curveballs, keeps the ball around the zone. He won't let you kill him, but you'll have an opportunity to. Marco Gonzalez, so interesting enough, we were talking about Denver before. He grew up in Colorado. And with that, he like didn't learn a curveball in his youth because of how weirdly curveballs behave there. So Marco Gonzalez actually was throwing two different changeups when he was coming up as a high schooler, which I thought was really interesting. I that was the first ever thing I wrote about baseball that got me my first ever blogging job, which is honestly kind of cool. I just want to shout that out there. And then second game of the series, we have Chris Bassett versus George Kirby. If anyone out there is not hit to George Kirby, he's one of the best pitching prospects in all of baseball. Sits 96, 95, 97, touches 98, 99. He's got a slider that grades out pretty well. He's got a curveball that looks really good, but he doesn't throw it very often. He is literally one of the most exciting pitching prospects in baseball. It's going to be cool for a lot of people who have never seen him before see him firsthand. New York kid as well. Really? Yeah. Where's he from? Yeah, he's from Rye, New York. So a uh, local guy. He went to Elon. Shout out to Matt Smoot. Wow. <laughs> fun, fun space is a, a contributor. Yeah. Rye, I think, is actually where Don Draper's like family home is actually set in Mad Men. Look at that. George Kirby, yeah. local kid. Hopefully we shell him. Old money. Yeah, hopefully we do shell him. And then Sunday... Matinee, Carlos Carrasco versus Robbie Ray. And this is probably the this, this is the matchup of the series where I say we're the most uh, at a deficit. Because Ray, though, hasn't really been like Cy Young Ray from 2021. He's kind of been like a mix of the old Diamondbacks Robbie Ray, where he throws a lot of pitches, and the 2021 Ray, where he gets a lot of strikeouts. So no reason not to get to these guys. No reason to not, again, win this series against the Mariners. No, Mariners have been struggling a little bit this year, playing a little bit lower than expected, not playing as well. Due to a part that, you know, a lot of the guys aren't really hitting. Baseballs, all the stuff that we know has already been going on. But they do have some fun players to watch. Specifically, the guy that I'm going to be so excited to see in person, even though he's playing against us, Julio Rodriguez. I'm just such a big J-Rod fan. Like, I think he's going to be an absolute stud, a generational-type talent. And he's starting to heat up now, too. It seems like he might be finally starting to get comfortable at the major league level. If you want to talk about a five-tool player, if you want to talk about a guy who's exciting, fast, power, good glove out in the outfield, can just run down baseballs, Julio Rodriguez is pretty sick. He's also a small guy. I never, I'd never actually watched him play a game. I just like had like tracked his stats and seen highlights. He's, he's not big at all. He's a, he's a skinny dude. No, he's like ripped. He's cut. 
Yeah, but he's also he's still skinny. How, he's how, be skinny how big is cut. he? How big is he? Don't look it I up. Think Let me hear. I'm not looking it up. Six one one eighty. Six three two twenty five. That just that just literally can't be true. I'm telling. I've met the guy in person. I met him as an eighteen year old and interviewed him. He's a massive human being. I don't know. I will say this: He looks slender on TV. He, he looks very slender on TV. But, I, I think that two twenty five is bullshit. No. I'm gonna say that now, Julio. If you want, if we could get a scale by Julio Rodriguez this weekend at City Field, I'd love to do it. Just personally, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna broadcast it out there. But I want to know for my own sake that guy's not two hundred twenty five. Dude, pounds. he's there's no chance. He's ripped. Yeah, he's probably as dense. All right, whatever. Sure, he just he does look slight on the field though, especially when he hits. Like he's very slender. Like he looks like if he stands sideways, you just can't see him. <laughs> Was he flat, Stanley? <laughs> He kind of is a little bit. He's still sick, though. I love Julio Rodriguez. Leads Major League in stolen bases. I think he either has 10 or 11. He had a crazy play from like either Monday or Tuesday this week where he just hit a blooper over the third baseman's head, and he stretched it out into a double because he's a freaky athlete. His OPS is like well, basically at 800 over the last three weeks. After the first two weeks of the season, it was below 400. So just young kid getting his feet under him. He's fantastic, and it's going to be really cool to watch him play. He's a budding star, probably the favorite, inter- my favorite interview I've ever had with a player that's not on the New York Mets, Julio Rodriguez. And then also Andres Munoz, who I knew you wrote down. Dude's a fireballer. Throws just like 103 miles an hour with a wipeout slider. Someone we're going to see in the series. He's like, he plays like the role in the Mariners bullpen because they have like a new age bullpen to do it the right way where it's like we have our best relievers and we're going to throw them at the times we need them the most so you can see him in the fifth inning sixth inning seventh inning eighth inning or ninth inning just whenever the Andres Munoz inning comes up and he's just going to throw you things that'll make your jaw drop but also we got to shout out former Met legend Paul Seawald I was just about to say that Paul Seawald coming back to New York okay so let me ask you this Paul Seawald booed or cheered or nothing I'm cheering him. I think the, I think the Mets fans are going to boo I'm him because he ball. wasn't that good with the Mets, but he always had a great slider. He always had a great slider. Always great at well. Always had good whiffs. Always had good movement. Seattle got a little more out of it. Plus his fastball velocity was always above average. It just it's so obvious that a guy like that would have left him been good. Jared Kelnick. Does Jared Kelnick get booed? Because I'm thinking he's going to get. He might big, just get booed for fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be big time booze. I won't be booing the guy. I don't think he deserves it. He's having a rough go of it as it is. But do you think he gets booed? I think he definitely gets booed. I think he probably loves it. I think him getting booed could catapult his entire career. <laughs> oh, please, God, no. <laughs> I, mean, so I, I, I haven't given up on Jared Kalnick yet. He might not have the superstar status that a lot of people thought he did. Yeah. But who knows? Even maybe the prospect people were just kind of caught up in the Lol Mets thing for all these years. It's true. It's true. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to defame any scouts out there because Jared Kalnick did have everything that looked like a great hitter would yeah. have. But he always struck out a lot. He continues to strike out a lot. Not really identify breaking balls that well. Yeah. It's going to be a fun series. It's going to be interesting. Like you said, the Mariners only come to town every once in a while, though in the future now it'll be like every year we'll play the Mariners. But When I was a youth, I was at a Mets-Mariners game. I know which one it is. Two times ago when they came, it was actually Shea State, one of the last years of Shea, yep. probably 2007 or 2008. It was a Friday night, just like it's later today when you guys are listening to this. Felix Hernandez on the bump, when Felix Hernandez was like prime Felix. I was so excited as like a little kid who like just loved baseball to see Felix Hernandez live. And this motherfucker hit a grand slam against the Mets. I was just sitting there stunned. And this was in the same season. I don't remember if this was before or after, or you're probably very close in time, where I was also at the Mets game on a Friday night when Dontrell Willis was near the height of his powers, and he also had a grand slam against the Mets. So there was one season when I was a kid, I saw two pitchers hit grand slams against the Mets in the same year. Thank God pitchers don't hit anymore, because boy, oh boy, it seems like they just love to they love to show up for James Shiano at the plate. <laughs> for sure. Uh, whatever. But let's, let's win another series here. We're better than the Mariners. They're not bad. They play good ball, but they're not... It's not really that scary at the end of the day. No, 
uh, we should definitely handle them pretty easily, I think, especially with how well the Mets have been playing. And that's a pretty good spot for us to wrap up episode number 91 of the Mets Up Podcast. Make sure you guys are following us on all our social media at Mets Up. If you want to watch the YouTube video, Mets Up Podcast on YouTube, you'll be able to find us there. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find them, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review. Follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Follow me at Giraffe Neck Mark. We're going to be at a bunch of games this weekend, so if you see us, make sure you say what's up. Again, we'll have stickers on us. James definitely will. I might remember to if I am not uh, just an idiot. I don't know. I never remember to bring those things with me anywhere. I brought them with me to Arizona. I can't even believe that's a thing that I did. That's literally psychotic. Yeah. That, why would you even do that? They were in my backpack. It was just, they were in oh. there. Oh, an accidental bring. An accidental bring. That's, I'll remember to bring some for you guys. So if you see us, come say what's up. Otherwise, that's it. See you guys. Bye. Peace out. <laughs>